Thank you for listening to season two of Spotless, Breaking the Boundaries of Television. Presented by two media powerhouses, Triple Lift and Advertising Week, Spotless brings you in-depth conversations with the leaders who are driving this evolution. So, you know, listen up. Evolution, we came from monkeys, now we're humans. Who knows where we are next? You're going to learn something on this podcast. So Young Kang is the chief marketing officer at EOS Products, the iconic beauty brand that has sold nearly a billion lip balms worldwide. In her role, So Young is responsible for driving the overall strategy, planning, and operations for marketing and e-commerce. Since joining EOS as CMO, So Young has completed a total reboot of the brand identity, from resetting creative and strategic vision to dramatically expanding the category footprint and product pipeline, to launching experimental marketing initiatives like the influencer collaboration Flavor Lab and hashtag EOS Microbatch D2C Fashion Drops. So Young has been named a Forbes CMO Next, an honor bestowed on leaders who serve as models of a new, emerging, and disruptive chief marketer. She was also selected by Business Insider as a CMO to watch for reshaping marketing and by Glossy as a beauty innovator who is driving change in the beauty industry. As a strong proponent of diversity, equity, and inclusion, So Young serves on the Adweek DEI Council, which brings together leading executives from some of the world's most renowned brands to demonstrate their commitment to accelerating change in the industry and providing opportunities for underrepresented communities. So Young, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of season two of Spotless. Oh, thank you for having me. It's really exciting to speak to you. Let's start by talking about your very impressive career how you got started, and what led you to your current role as the first ever CMO at EOS? Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I um, sometimes I, I honestly don't know how I ended up where I did, but I'm just grateful for the journey that I've had getting here. And as you probably can tell, it wasn't always a straightforward path. I've had a few um, you know, twists and turns in the course of my career. Um, I, I really started off, I think of the first decade of my career as being one where I built out my strategy chops. And it's a lot of the fundamental skills that I built in those first 10 years of my career are things that I really applied to my current role as a chief marketing officer, even though it's not really a typical background for a CMO. So I think of it as being, um, you know, each subsequent stage of my career has really built out different skills. That first tenure gave me strategy um, skills. The the next 15 years um, working with uh, brands like Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works really gave me retail and product expertise. And now in my um, CMO role at EOS, it's sort of like the full suite and I get to sort of activate, activate against all of the things that I've learned. You know, I was really brought into EOS at an inflection point in the business. The business had been incredibly successful um, during the first um, sort of seven, eight years of its life and really had reached a point where they were looking to invigorate and, and um, generate the next um, wave of growth. Um, and they really wanted to do that through looking more holistically at the brand and, and um, rebooting the brand. Um, and expanding um, how we engage with consumers and the product categories in which we operate to diversify the business. And so um, that's why they brought me in. Um, and it's been um, an incredible journey. I've been here now for um, three plus years, and I am just excited to be here today as I was when I joined um, a little over three years ago. That is amazing. And I love the concept of how your career has built from one category to another, and now it's coming all together uh, in, in the role that you have now. When EOS was founded, it grew from a lip balm brand to a brand that creates a new approach to traditional products. It, it really is like a lifestyle, is the EOS lifestyle. With this tremendous growth, how do you keep up with industry and consumer trends? And how do you continue to stay relevant 
and maintain a position as a as a leading brand in the industry? I, I mean, it's a it's it's a tough uh, nut to crack. To be honest, it's the thing that I grapple with pretty much every day um, on the job. Um, essentially, you know, when I first came in, the ma- the mandate that I have had was to diversify our footprint and really to um, be- go from being a brand that was really famous for being a lip balm brand to being a more full fledged, multi category personal care brand. Um, and that's been a that's been a journey, and we certainly have had um, you know a, a number of really great successes over the past three years that I can really point to things like the the tremendous growth that we've seen in our shave cream business, the um, the newer categories within body care that we've more recently entered, but that have been um, on an amazing growth trend as well. Um, but all of that comes with I think an appreciation for the fundamentals of um, a frankly, starting with product and then understanding consumer. Um, without that, I just don't think that it's possible um, to really succeed in today's world. It's a it's too competitive a world within the categories that we operate in, which are, you know, like product and retail, um, if you don't have really differentiated, excellent product. But the good news is, is that the equities that have really driven our strategy um, in our product expansion have always been there since the beginning. So you talk about like disruption and innovation, and that's been there since day one. Um, EOS is a, is a brand that has a history and a legacy in taking a not particularly interesting category, lip balm, and disrupting it in a way that nobody could have envisioned. And I think that today, disruption in sort of maybe more fundamental or basic categories is sort of um, the way that many brands are approaching um, and, and, and launching kind of left and right all the time. But 10 plus years ago, that was unheard of. That wasn't something that was happening in the drugstore aisle or in the mass aisles. And so by tapping into and really respecting that heritage of disruption and and turning things on on their heads, um, I think our team has really been able to then succeed in subsequent additional um, adjacent categories. It's not easy to do because it's easy to say you're going to disrupt and innovate, but it's a harder thing to actually accomplish that. Um, And so our team spends a lot of time, and this is is really tapping into my background also um, within the world of retail. We spend a lot of time out in the marketplace. We we look for inspiration everywhere, um, not just in our direct competitive set. We look for inspiration through in, in storytelling. We look for inspiration in categories that are completely unrelated to ours, and then we um, try to take some of those insights and then apply them to our own categories of business as well. Um, So we spend a lot of time out in the marketplace. We spend a lot of time sort of like seeing what consumers are shopping and what they're engaging with. Um, And that's how I think our approach to to product innovation is, is truly like best in class for a company of our size. And then we take that same approach and we approach, and we apply that to the way that we go to market in our storytelling and in our marketing um, and how we, you know, create content and how we continue to engage consumers, or, you know, th- as audiences. So um, the spirit of innovation and the spirit of inspiration coming from anywhere is something that I, I really believe is, is truly EOS. Um, and it's something that I, I try to respect and, and bring forward to, to the present day. You have evolution in the name of your, in the name of your organization for a reason. That's true. It's very clear. <laughs> so building off of that and, and building off of um, the concept of disruption, what are you specifically doing or what are some tactics, tactics that you've employed to attract and maintain this next generation of consumers? So I, I think that, um, you know, we, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about um, things from the product perspective and, and, and from a product perspective, I think there are a lot of things where it's like, you know, things, uh, features that maybe would have only existed in sort of ultra luxury premium products. We, we tend to want to be able to kind of like 
bring that to you know the mass world. We we like the idea of sort of democratizing access to really really great high quality products. So, but you know, I, I have covered a lot of that territory. I I think that if I think more from a um, engagement and go to market perspective, I think that it, it you know we we really um, spend a lot of time where our consumer is. Um, so we like to think you know our 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 core like the the center of that bullseye is really a, a Gen Z consumer, and so we believe that in order to really understand that consumer and that audience, we really have to just sort of like immerse ourselves in that world, like us specifically, not our agency, not consultants, not outside parties, but us specifically. So, you know, it just as an example, you know, as, as you guys may be aware, we're, we're really um, big on TikTok as a big strategy. We've been on that platform now since 2018. I've been personally on the platform since 2018. It's sort of way before people were really talking about it within the, the you know, at, in my peer group. Um, and, and so that's just one example of how we really believe that immersing ourselves in sort of behaving and being where our consumer is, is the only way to really understand um, what it is that they care about. And then we kind of think about that to help to drive, there are basically three sort of high level ways that we approach it. It's what's the message that our core audience cares about? How do we deliver the right content that's engaging and that's not just an interruptive, disruptive ad? And then how do we deliver it in the best way possible um, in the um, in the platforms and the ecosystems where they're spending their time? Um, and so that's really how we think about making sure that we continue to engage and connect with our audience. That is such an amazing and concise uh, way of representing the marketplace. And and we at Triple F think about things in the very same similar way as you just described. It's amazing how that crosses over things. I want to get to, I want to save TikTok for, for just a little bit. And I really want to dive into it because I love what you guys are doing there. Um, but kind of going back to who you're speaking to, can you speak about the average EOS customer who is certainly not average in any way and and what you're doing to leverage insights on consumer behavior to activate campaigns? Yeah, so I mean, we have um, a pretty, uh, so starting with our consumer, our our typical consumer, you know, I talk about like the center of our bullseye being um, sort of a, you know, more demographically speaking, a Gen Z consumer, but there are actually outer rings to that bullseye as well. So when you look at, you know, folks who've been with us, for example, um, since our beginning and who've been super fans since the beginning, they're actually more um, in their millennial, they're more of the millennial demographic. And so we really think about Gen Z and millennial from a demographic perspective, but then there's a layer around psychographics that's really important to us as well. So psychographically speaking, our consumer tends to be, um, you know, whether they're 13 or 30, um, folks who really love engaging on, um, you know, experiential aspects of our brand. And so when we, um, you know, when we speak to them about um, our, our brand and we, and we launch new products to them, they're, they're, consuming the excitement of innovation and newness and um, and the the inspiration that they get when they discover something new that they wouldn't have expected from you know like our at our core uh, traditionally a lip balm brand so one example is we are known as the dominant player in flavor in lip balm and I don't think that you know when you go back to the original days of lip balm flavor wasn't a big thing other than cherry chapstick well we take flavor to another level and what we find is that our core audience that really loves us as a brand, they love the storytelling. They want to, they don't just want to know that it's, you know, cherry flavor. What they want to know is that it's, you know, it's pink cherry flavor with a yuzu citrus top and a creamy vanilla, you know, back note. So it's almost like 
artisanal in nature and they love the storytelling. They love the, um, the experiential aspect of engaging with our product and our brand. And so that's a lot of what we think about when we, um, are, you know, brainstorming how we're going to better connect with them, whether it's through our owned and organic channels or whether it's through our paid media. So with that in mind, then we develop, we have a pretty robust um, set of tools that we tap into, whether they're, um, you know, sort of our big, what I would call tentpole moments around insights, like um, big, you know, massive brand studies that are going incredibly deep um, in the, our brand health and our consumer like attitudes and usage and things like that, whether they're, um, you know, big campaign analytics that are looking at like the effectiveness of our campaign in terms of lifting our brand and driving our business, or whether it's just frankly the day-to-day. And the day-to-day happens a lot because we are a big player on social media and we have millions and millions of followers across the social media platform. There's so much of insight that we would be ignoring and leaving behind if we we weren't just listening to what people are telling us out in the social media ecosystem. So that's a huge part of our um, insights as well. So if I think about how we learn things from consumers and some of the most important things that we've learned have not been because they've been through a big formal robust study, they've been through the, the basic day-to-day act of social listening, but we cap everything with sort of the big studies and tools and reporting as well as the always on, you know, ears to the ground kind of um, way of operating that has become just sort of native to our team. That's amazing. It's it's anecdotal, but it's also super data driven. It sounds like it's it's both. I think I, I I'm very much a proponent that you know great marketers always blend art and science, um, and I do think that any aspect of anything that we're doing, whether it's, you know, creative concepts through to consumer insights through to anything, really, you can apply an art lens and you can apply a science lens. 100%. Also, EO sounds more like uh, taking the wine brand approach to uh, flavor profiles, which also is such a such an amazingly unique perspective. You were referencing, you know, the experiential nature of consumers interacting with your brands. And uh, last year, we had a little, uh, we had a little year where we didn't have so much interaction in the same way. And 2020, we saw expedited trends and new behaviors that were heightened by the pandemic. And as a result, a lot of D2C and e-commerce growth um, came out of that. With the shift in retail experience, can you talk about the tactics and strategies behind keeping consumers engaged in an environment of retail that looks completely different? Yeah. So 2020, I think was, um, wow, how much did we learn in such a short period of time, right? I, I feel like I've aged multiple years in the course of the past um, year plus, but I have to kind of rewind a little bit and just like level set what type of a, what the business dynamics are for us for, I think for, um, you know, your audience to understand how challenging 2020 was for us in particular. So we are a brand that historically has been predominantly driven, our revenues are predominantly driven, not only at retail, but brick and mortar retail, not, not really e-commerce or D2C retail. Not only that, we are a brand where our a lot of our business is done um, through impulse purchase. So imagine that you're the consumer, you're walking down the aisle, you're browsing at your local, you know, Target or Walmart, you happen to see an EOS product and you pick it up and you, you know, drop it in your shopping cart. That's a very kind of different behavior that that there was a lot less of last year versus the I have a list, I know what I'm getting in my trip, I'm taking fewer trips and loading up my basket and getting bigger baskets. It's it, there wasn't as much room last year for impulse or you know browsing behavior, and so that disproportionately hits a brand like ours. Um, we also happen to have um, like 
entry-level opening price points, which are typically not the kinds of things that people go out of their way to try to purchase. You know, so you, it's one thing if you're like, you know, I'm going to buy a TV. You're, you, you might, you buy a TV, you're doing a lot of research, you're going online to do your research. Not a lot of people research lip balm, you know, I mean, so, and, and it's a $3 lip balm. So people aren't really that psyched about paying $5 shipping to get a $3 lip balm. So what happened in 2020 with the great shift and the multiple years of acceleration in, in e-commerce penetration to business was what, what we thought was going to be incredibly difficult for us. And I'm not saying it wasn't difficult, but it was really also amazing to see how much of our business did end up shifting into e-commerce. So for me, knowing the background of where we were starting as a brand and knowing the dynamics of our business, but then still seeing how we were seeing six to seven X growth in our e-commerce business is, is truly remarkable because we're not the type of business that you would have thought it would be an easy move from offline brick and mortar into online. Um, and, you know, granted the, the, the peak of that all sort of happened during the height of the pandemic. So I would say, you know, it's Q2 through um, most of Q3, but then even when we settled back down, so as stores started to reopen, as foot traffic started to head back out to retail, we still are seeing elevated levels of digital penetration um, in our in our sales that indicates that this is a new normal for us to ensure that we are prepared for going forward. So um, last year was really all about investing in our um, tools around digital media that drives our third-party retail. This year has been a lot more now, now that we have sort of like our feet under us on that in that respect, this year has been really about focusing on how to build out our own D2C capabilities and building out our own D2C business. And we've been on that journey now for the, the better part of this year. And over the course of this entire year, we haven't had a week that hasn't seen at least 40% growth in our D2C, which has been really phenomenal for us. Again, a lip balm brand, but people are willing, you know, I think if you create a a, a destination environment, if you create enough reason for people to come to you specifically, um, that you you really can um, have a successful direct-to-consumer business, even in a category that you wouldn't have expected it. It, it is such a it is such a remarkable and wonderful story. I, I the next the next topic is going to be TikTok, but just even before we launch into that, was there was it immediately after people were not leaving their house that that this change in numbers started to happen? Was there something specific that triggered it? Or do you think that it had to do with people's desire for a connection to the world that we were not able to experience in person anymore that, that triggered that? It, it was pretty, it was pretty immediate. I mean, we really, we literally saw shutdown and then in the, the week after shutdown, our, our business spiked across all of our digital channels. And, and I'm talking about um, within our D2C, which was, you know, at that point, we weren't really working super hard to grow that particular channel because we're, you know, understandably so our focus was really on, on our um, retailer partnerships, but even within our retailer partnerships, that's where we were seeing, you know, three, four, five, six, seven X growth in our um, e-commerce sales as from a contribution standpoint to our total business. So, and, and it happened really, really fast. I mean, the th- the reality was that people still needed to buy things. They still needed to, to shop, whether it was, you know, Amazon or target.com or walmart.com, they were still going to be shopping. Um, and they just modified their behavior very quickly. Um, and, and, and we saw that impact our business pretty much overnight. Unbelievable. And, and just so exciting for you to discover this entirely different realm of how, of how consumerism could work. 
getting into some of the exciting uh, digital tactics that you've been using, um, you've been quoted as saying, I know there are still some brands who view TikTok as experimental. We are way past that. TikTok is table stakes. Can you share more about the successes that EOS has had utilizing TikTok's e-commerce functions? Sure. I mean, we first launched on TikTok, uh, I believe it was September of 2019 was our first ever campaign on TikTok. And and there were a lot of firsts associated, not just for us, but for TikTok as well. I believe we were the first beauty brand to, um, you know, take advantage of certain, uh, you know, campaign um, components with TikTok. And one of those things was actually there were, they they had a a version of a capability around creating a a shoppable microsite, which I haven't actually seen since then. I I, I guess I should poke around and see if that still exists. But um, I would say that the engagement with that section of, of the app was like, for us, um, I wouldn't say that it like knocked our socks off or anything. It wasn't, it wasn't like we saw a ton of um, sales coming through. I think that the the key is that what we've learned about our audience and the platforms on which we are successful, which are predominantly the you know social media platforms, is that sustained presence and investment over time has made all the difference in seeing success. So you know that was our first foray into TikTok. We we didn't even have an account at the time. We opened the account in order to launch the campaign. We had like probably I was like the follow only follower <laughs> at the time, um, and then. We just kept going back at it. We we had um, subsequently a number of campaigns. We saw steady growth. We started to invest in owned and organic and building out our own presence on the platform. And we started to see um, steady growth in terms of lead generation coming through um, TikTok. And um, and yet still, I would say through even 2020, um, it was a, it would be, I would say it's fairly modest because you know our you know sort of biggest platforms in terms of driving traffic to um, let's say our D 2 C, you know are kind of the same ones that you typically know about like Facebook um, and Instagram. And then this year something changed. Um, so this year. Um, we really started to gain scale um, in our audience following. So if you look back at the beginning of 2020, we had maybe like 100,000 followers by, um, you know, fast forward to the beginning of 2021, and we had over 600,000 followers. So we had grown tremendously in terms of our audience on the platform. And then we started to also see that more and more traffic was being driven off of TikTok. So in the first quarter, we, um, I would probably call it like starting to climb the ranks. I, and getting close to Facebook and Instagram in terms of traffic driving. Um, and then by second quarter, it completely flipped. And so then TikTok became bigger, like two to three X bigger um, than, um, you know, than our other platforms in terms of driving traffic to our, um, to our site. And, you know, obviously we benefited from, uh, we had a viral video that, that came out in that second quarter that really accounts for quite a lot of that, but we've still seen sustained success in terms of traffic coming through TikTok. Um, it, it's really um, been uh, gone from being an experimental platform for us in 2019 to, um, you know, today we always think about TikTok as a core component of any marketing campaign that we're running. If we're running a camp, if we're running any sort of in- integrated marketing campaign, there's a, you know, X component, Y component, and there's always a TikTok component as well. And I love the content that is on there and the collaborations with artists and how they are promoting EOS, even with their own, with their own uh, creativity. It's, it's unbelievable. In addition to TikTok, there are so many other options today of how consumers can be reached. How important is EOS's presence across linear, across digital CTV? And can you share different objectives that, that EOS has for each of these mediums? 
if I think back to when we relaunched our brand, I mean, I think that that that's probably the best place to start. And then I can talk about how our, our point of view has evolved over time. But when we relaunched our brand in the fourth quarter of 2019, which was, you know, that, that was shortly after we launched that first TikTok campaign, we really viewed our, um, our, our strategy around there were things, there were, there were platforms in which it was really important for us to be um, present in order to tell our brand story is because this was an important message that we were telling, which is, this is, you know, this is EOS and this is what we stand for, which isn't the kind of story that is easy to tell, you know, via an influencer campaign. Um, it, so in, in certain respects, we, we really felt like our holistic campaign strategy needed to involve things where we had very tight control over the message and where we had an ability to deliver the message exactly the way that we felt it was important to deliver that, that to our audience. And then in other areas, there were things like partner with creators and let them take control and tell their story about EOS. And, and we felt like it was important for us to, to have both um, types of um, activations and tactics in our toolkit. And so when I think about um, our um, our approach to connected TV, OTT, and even linear TV, which we did run at that time, it was really all about be, having this um, very thoughtfully curated brand story and our ability to be able to tell that to consumers at scale. And I would say that I think that 2020, like many brands, we did have to pull back and tighten our budgets and get leaner. Um, and in that respect, we we had to, to pull back and get very, very efficient in terms of how we were going to um, continue to have, um, you know, engaging campaigns with our audience. And we lean much more heavily into social media. And as we've been coming out of the pandemic in 2021, we're now re-entering a period where we really believe as a marketing team, our, 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 our fundamental belief is that we need to be able to have finely tuned, curated, crafted storytelling that we deliver primarily through, um, you know, OTT and connected TV, as well as authentic, real, um, you know, uh, a sort of uh, halo generating collaborations that we do with influencers and creators on social media. And in an ideal world, we would always have sort of both things within our plan. Um, and the only thing that we're, the only time when we've actually had to pull back from it was frankly, when we were resource constrained and we needed to make some hard choices um, and frankly, be able to be very, very fast and nimble in how we sort of like turned on and off things within our media plan. Um, and, and that's really the only time that we've sort of like, you know, deviated from our overarching strategy. Shifting gears just before we wrap up uh, in this last year, we've seen a long overdue increase in social awareness, and you're a very active voice for the AAPI community, um, the um, Asian American Pacific Islanders. Can you share more about your own efforts along with EOS's efforts to show support for the community uh, along with other underrepresented voices? Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'd be thrilled to. I, I, I would say um, for me specifically, this has been a relatively um, new phase within my career. Um, and I, you know, I've had a, a long career, uh, during which uh, I have, you, you know, I, I've I've always um, been a, an Asian American within my career. My whole life, I've been an Asian American, and yet I've I've never really spoken about my personal experiences. I think I was really, um, you know, as I was going up my career path, I think I felt that I needed to 
not be vulnerable in a lot of ways. And, and that may be part of just sort of how I was, how I was raised or, um, you know, maybe it was a cultural thing within the companies that I was in, but nevertheless, I, I feel like the comfort level of exposing sort of my own vulnerabilities, my fears, my, um, my belief systems has really only happened over the course of the past year plus. And, but man, it's, I'm so glad that it did because I, I think that the ability for me to be able to um, tell real stories about my experiences with my coworkers, which I, I think I, I mistakenly thought would, would make me, uh, my vulnerability would not necessarily be welcome, has been embraced, welcomed, appreciated. Um, it's created a more open space for dialogue within our own organization where um, different folks who have experienced you know, many other things in their lives that they're not necessarily Asian, they're just, you know, people who represent all sorts of, um, you know, aspects of diversity have felt more comfortable telling their own stories as well. And um, for me, it, there's no going back from the journey that that I've been on, and frankly, that our country's been on for the past um, year plus. I've, I've taken that, um, you know, really to now in my, um, in my spare time, I really like to volunteer with different organizations, you know, one of the one of the, the major areas where I spend my time is I work with an organization called Ascend, which is the largest Pan-Asian professional organization um, across the country. And, you know, I work with them to create, um, you know, new ways that uh, marketing executives who are of Pan-Asian descent can um, learn and grow and continue on their career paths as well. It's sort of my way of giving back from uh, the, the tremendous privileges that I've been granted over the course of my long career. Um, and I couldn't be prouder of doing that than with a company like EOS that has embraced similarly to me, um, this uh, diversity uh, as, as a key principle and value within the company. And, um, you know, I think that uh, over the course of the, the past year plus, we've we've also been on a journey where we've been much more um, expressive and open about expressing those values on our platforms and amplifying the important messages, whether it's, you know, messages around supporting the Asian community, whether it's messages around, yes, Black Lives Matter, or messages around um, celebrating, you know, Pride Month with the LGBTQ community. These are all things that um, we've been so happily diving into and leveraging our platforms to be able to kind of amplify these messages. Um, and then beyond on that, I think it's there's there's also an aspect of like we're also I'm so proud to say like putting our money where our mouth is because there's the stories that you're telling, which I I do think you know sometimes can be viewed from the outside world as being very like you know performative allyship, um, but then you know the, it, there's the work work of the work behind the scenes too, whether it's in terms of like hiring and ensuring that your own the organization's diversity is where um, is heading in the right direction and, and and where it should be, whether it's how you hire within um, your your supply chain. So, you know, for us, you know, for me, thinking about the marketing supply chain, who are we hiring as outside partners? How are we um, high, ensuring that we have diversity in the teams that are creating all the great work that we're putting out there? How do we ensure that we have diversity in front of the camera as well, and making sure that we're showing, um, you know, inclusive and represent representative talent? So, all of these things have been things that you know our team has been really um, dedicated to. A, to continued progress. And, you know, while I, I can't say that we're hundred percent perfect quite yet, what I'm really proud of is that the effort is sustained and it's here for good. Here for good is the message that I hope resonates. That is so important. We like to end our conversations with a prediction on the future of television and, and where we're going based on all of the growth and data trends that we're seeing to date. And from a brand perspective with everything that you've experienced, um, what would you like to see when it comes to the future of, of TV? 
So I noticed, Alexis, that you often have very, very expert media folks who um, who take part in this podcast. So um, so I'm I'm very grateful that you frame this as sort of like what would I like to see as a future of TV, um, because certainly folks who are more expert than me have probably answered that question um, uh, from the perspective of like the media landscape and what will come. But I what I what I can say from the perspective of on the brand side as a, as a brand person, you know, I, I I related the story around some of the challenges that we've experienced as a leaner organization with fluctuating resources. As much as we think that, you know, we're, we're sort of like through the worst, it's it's kind of unclear. I, I gen- genuinely do not know what the rest of the months this year are going to hold for us from um, a business standpoint, from a budget standpoint. And, um, you know, it's been great to see the influence of um, you things like data and targeting and addressability happening within the future of TV. I think the other piece would be the flexibility around lead time and, and being able to engage as a smaller, leaner brand and being able to turn things on and off um, and, and pivot. Because I, I think that um, agility has become such an important mainstay for any marketer and, um, the, then, you know, letting that flow through to, um, you know, the, the publishers and the media providers, I think, um, will need to also be, um, able to provide agile, nimble, flexible solutions for brand marketers who are increasingly asking for agility, um, in where they invest. And so, um, I think that that's something that I, I would love to see, um, happening in the future of TV. Well, EOS is already 100% on the agile, flexible, uh, quick turnaround train. It's so exciting to see everything that you guys have put together and look forward to engaging with your products and your branding. So young, it's been so fascinating to hear about uh, your growth and transformation along with EOS's brand growth and transformation. Thank you so much for being on Spotless. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to chat with you. 